You know, yesterday I, uh, I met with uh, one of our deacons, Ruben Gonzalez, and um, he had a, a cousin, a young cousin that just had a baby. This baby was one week old. And um, he asked me to, to go over to the cousin's house and to pray over the little baby. And um, the baby was born. It weighed about six pounds. And this little intricate, detailed baby, um, weighing six pounds, had 13 tumors on its heart and many tumors in its, on its brain. And so um, the, the little baby's name is Aiden. So you guys keep Aiden in your prayers. I, I just had a peace in my spirit and a, and a conviction in my spirit that Aiden would be healed. So Reuben and I prayed over the family and we, we prayed over the baby Aiden. But, but before we go any further in our, in our service, let's just as a church family pray for the healing power of God on this little baby. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would bless this baby. Father, you're the great physician. There is nothing too difficult for you. There is nothing impossible for you. You're the God that healeth thee. We pray in Jesus' name that you would give this family peace, and we pray in Jesus' name that you would heal this baby. To the glory of the name Christ, and Lord, we pray for long life for Aiden, and we pray that his life would bring glory to your name and hope to many and wholeness to many. In Jesus' name, heal Aiden. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You know, when I was uh, looking at that little baby, and, and, and Robbie, thank you for that, for that great reminder to focus on our Master Christ, and that's what Christmas is all about. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote of this lady, and she was in a bus at Christmas time, and she, the bus was passing by a church, and she looked at the church, and there was a, a, a nativity scene outside the church with a, you know, with the manger and a, and, and a baby, and a, it was representing Christ who was born, and, and this, this lady riding the bus was indignant, and she said something like, you know, those Christians have to bring religion into everything. Now they're dragging it into Christmas or something like that, but Christ is the reason for the season, and Christ is the reason for our lives, and, and, I, and I thought of that as I was looking at that little baby yesterday, and just the, you guys know how it is, just the detail in the ear and the detail in their, their skull and their, their little nose and their little fingers. And I told that mother, I said, you know, isn't it amazing that just a little over a week ago, this baby was in your belly. And then nine months before that, this baby didn't exist. And now here is Aiden. Isn't that incredible? And that reminded me of what Christmas is about. As Mary and Joseph and the shepherds were worshiping, Yes, worshiping, but I thought you're only supposed to worship the Lord your God. Exactly. They were worshiping the Lord their God, the eternal God, when he was born in a manger in this little baby. And, and just hours before they were worshiping, this little baby, the creator of the universe, was in the womb of this teenage girl. And just months before that, the, this baby... Filled all and was in all and was sustaining all by the power of his glorious word. Just months before, this baby was in the throne room of the Holy of Holies as all of the angels were ascribing glory to him, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let's read about this 
baby. We, we call it the incarnation. The incarnation, it's a, it's a Latin term to mean become flesh. And this is what Christmas is all about. It's the incarnation. God became flesh. And thus, Christmas was born in a manger. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. Jesus was not a great man. Jesus was not a good man who was so good he eventually became God. That is, that is heretical and that is completely opposite of truth. Jesus is not a great man who eventually ascended into deity. For all of eternity, Jesus is God and God became flesh. Oh, the sheer humility of it. Let's read about this incarnation. For to us a child will be born. To us a son will be given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his governments or peace. Larry King was once asked, if you could interview anybody, living or dead, in the history of the world, who would it be? And he said, oh, without a doubt, Jesus. Larry King is a non-believer. And they said, really? If you could ask him one question, what would you ask him? And he said, simple. I would say, are you truly virgin born? Because that would make all of the difference in the world. Great question. And the answer, yes, he is. He is God who became flesh, the Son of God. You know, all throughout history, there have been people who've claimed to be something and people who have been esteemed as something. But in the final analysis, their life was like a a drop of water in a pond. There is a brief ripple and their life might have touched the world with a brief ripple, but then their place is gone and they are remembered no more. For example, can you tell me who the best actor was in 1962? No, I can't either. Their their place is gone and they are remembered no more. But Jesus Christ's name will never vanish. It will never fade away. And what's so remarkable about about this is that Jesus, on his earth, never wrote a book. And yet there are not enough libraries in all of the world to contain the volumes that have been written about him. Jesus, as far as we know, never painted a picture. And yet his life has inspired more art, more poetry, more, more music, more statues, more sculptures than any other artist in history. Jesus never raised up an army. And yet millions have been willing to die in his name. Jesus, at the time of his death, had few followers, and they all scattered. And yet, today, over 30% of the entire world's 7 billion population professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Jesus had no formal education. And yet, more universities and university buildings... And hospitals have been erected in the name of Christ than any other name. Jesus never traveled beyond a geographical area larger than the size of America's smallest state, Rhode Island. And yet testimonies of Christ have circled the world and continue to circle the world over and over and over. Jesus' teachings that were recorded have been more scrutinized, more criticized, more analyzed than anybody's teachings throughout the course of history. And yet, 2,000 years after his life, at any given minute, 
of any 24-hour-a-day, millions of people are worshiping Christ, praying to Christ, or studying the words of Christ. That is phenomenal. And what is so revolutionary about Christ, what is so undoing, what is so remarkable and staggering and awe-inspiring and speechless, is that Jesus created this movement, this revolution where he transformed the world, separating the centuries, B.C., before Christ, and A.D., in the year of our Lord, not through a quest for power, not through a quest for influence, but through a path of humility, of utter humility. And this was the descent of Christ. This is the incarnation of God becoming flesh. It is a path of humility. Let's read about it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves. That means his followers of Jesus Christ, as Jesus said, should not exert influence and practice leadership like the world does. But let's have this mind in ourselves that Christ has. Who, though being in the form, God. Now, make no mistake about it. I asked our youth this past Wednesday night, I said, is there a difference between Islam and Christianity? And, and a few of them said, no, it's pretty much about the same thing. And I said, no, it's pretty much about exactly opposite of one another. You can count on that. For example, uh, Muhammad believed that he was the greatest of prophets, and Muslims believe that Muhammad was the greatest of prophets, and Jesus was a prophet, but lesser prophet. And one day, God the Father will look at Jesus and say, did you declare yourself to be my son? And Jesus is uh, supposedly supposed to say, according to Islamic teaching, oh no, Allah, you know I would never say such a thing. And yet, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And they said, Philip, or Philip said, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said, Philip, have you been with me this long? And you still don't recognize me? I and the Father are one. And as we've talked about before, Jesus said, His name is I Am. He is the Son of God, and He is the eternal, everlasting God, co-equal with God the Father. Jesus is God. And one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, including Muhammad. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus... Who, though he was in the form God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus is God, co-equal with God the Father. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. By him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made that, that, that is made. And he upholds all things and sustains all things in the cosmos by the power of his word. He is God, and there is salvation in no other name than Christ Jesus our Lord. And this God is humble. He is humble. Watch this. Jesus emptied himself. This is the incarnation. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself and humbled himself. You see, Jesus was not so great that he became God. Jesus is God throughout all of ages, throughout all of eternity, and he became man. This is the incarnation. And in becoming man, he emptied himself. What does this mean, Jesus 
emptied himself. It means that Jesus was a dichotomy. He was the God-man. He was not part God and part man. That would make him more than a man and less than a God. Jesus was a dichotomy. 100% God, the incarnation, and 100% man. And in becoming 100% man, he emptied himself. And we gloss right over this. But Jesus emptied himself. Oh, our minds can never grasp how much Jesus emptied himself. Our vocabulary is far too limited to ever articulate how much Jesus indeed emptied himself. Our, our hearts could, 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 could never be filled with enough awe and enough humility to understand how much Jesus emptied himself. But he emptied himself. And let's look at just three ways that he emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself of, watch this, omniscience. What is omniscience? Omniscience is all-knowing. Jesus emptied himself of omniscience. We read in Job, Jesus willingly descended from this. Do you know the balancing of the clouds? God asks Job rhetorically. The wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? He's perfect in knowledge. And we read in Isaiah, God says, I am God and there is none like me declaring in from beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. All-knowing. The eternal God who is all-knowing, Jesus willingly descended from his omniscience to this. Watch this in Luke chapter 2 verse 52. Jesus was born, he grew, and when he's about the age of 12, 12 years, we read, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Is that not staggering? The eternal God who's omniscient from ancient days calls things, uh, the end of things before they're even beginning. This God became man and he grew in wisdom. This means that the God who created it all learned how to walk. Can you imagine? Mary and Joseph were saying, that's it, Jesus, just take one step, one step, Jesus, just one step. The, the God who calls the angels by name had to learn the names of everything. Jesus, this is a cup. Can you say cup? That's it, Jesus, cup. All right, now you try it. Cup. The God who generously fed all things by his sovereign hand had to be fed, spoon-fed, with drool and food coming down his chin. The God who suspended the galaxies and the cosmos was out back with his dad, Joseph, when he was about seven years of age, learning how to just to nail two boards across from one another. This God had to learn how to tie his sandals that John the Baptist said, I'm not even worthy to untie. Can you imagine? Jesus, okay, you take this string, this string, and now around the tree, down the hole like that. Okay, got it. Now, now you try it, Jesus. Oh, the humility of it. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Why did he do that? To show us how to live? To show us the way? 
There's a story about this man, and it's a freezing night. It's a blistering, cold, wintry night, and he lives out in the farm. And uh, he's inside of his house by the glow of, of, of his fireplace, and it's warm. And, and, and he hears something that keeps hitting up against his glass door, and he sees these, these birds. They're freezing to death outside, and they're attracted to the glow of the warmth inside, and they just keep hitting against the window. And, and he has an idea. He said, you know, I, I, he thinks I'm, I'm going I'm to go to the barn, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to light it up. I'm going to warm it up and open the doors and so the birds can fly out there. But, but when he goes outside and he opens up the doors, it, it scares all the birds away and they fly off into the blistery, wintry night. And he goes back and he's inside and he feels bad that he scared them off and that they will probably freeze to death. And then he has a thought. He thinks, you know, if I, if I could have somehow been a bird, then I could have just flown beside him and I could have told him not to be afraid of me, but rather to follow me. And that's the essence of the incarnation. God became flesh and He dwelt among us. He walked among us and as one of us, He said, follow me. Follow me to life. This is the incarnation. We read in John chapter 5 verse 19, Jesus said, in emptying Himself of His omniscience, He was utterly and entirely dependent upon His Father. He said, I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by Himself. This is emptying himself. This is the incarnation. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Jesus said, I do not speak on my own accord. For the Father sent me, commanded me what to say and how to say it. He's emptying himself. Once I was skiing in Colorado and I was skiing down, I think it was a blue, which is fairly steep, but not quite as steep as some of the blacks, but I was skiing down the blue. And, and I hear behind me somebody screaming, right, right, left, 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 right, right. And I'm just skiing, and I'm not thinking anything of it. And I hear, right, right, left, left. And then somebody just zooms past me like a bolt of lightning. And they had this bright orange vest. And it said, blind skier on the vest. And then somebody zooms past me, screaming the commands at them, left, left, right, right. This is how Jesus chose to live. When he came to earth, he closed his eyes to his omniscience and was entirely and utterly dependent upon his father's leading. Say this, say that, go here, go there. And he did it to show us how to live. Are we omniscient? No. Oh, no. But Jesus emptied himself of omniscience to show us how to live with our eyes closed to our senses, to what we feel, to what we sense, because our heart is deceitfully wicked. How justified and righteous and godly do we feel sometimes when we harbor our greatest bitterness? Have you ever fired off a text message? It took you about two seconds to write, like some 10-page text message, and you were so mad and you just fired it off only to have to apologize for that text message for the next two months? Am I the only one that's done that? (laughs) Our heart is deceitfully wicked. We think we're omniscient, we're not. We think think we're all-knowing, we are not. We think we know the path that leads to life and righteousness, we don't, but God does. And so we close our eyes to our five senses. We think everything is hopeless, but it's not. We think this mountain's going to move and there's no power that can obliterate it, but that's not true. Our senses deceive ourselves, and so we close our eyes to our senses and to our weaknesses, and we trust God. And this is to follow Christ. Jesus also emptied himself of his omnipresence. 
Watch this. Jesus willingly descended from this. He rides upon the wind. He rides upon the wings of the wind. Psalm 104.3. Isn't that a powerful verse? Have you ever thought about how God traveled before he was born as a baby? He rides upon the wings of the wind. Like a flash of lightning. In 1 Kings, Solomon writes, But will God indeed dwell in the earth? It's a rhetorical question and a staggering yes through Christ. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. You, much less this house which I have built. Talking about the temple. And yet, Jesus willingly descended from riding on the wings of the winds and feeling all in all in the highest heavens to this. Watch this verse that we oftentimes gloss right over. Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Wow. Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And we never paused to ask how far was that. Well, it was about 70 miles. How did Jesus get there? On foot. He walked through the desert with sandals. About a two to three day journey. That's if you walk from sunup to sundown. And if like most Jews, you bypass Samaria, it's a 120 mile journey. That's four to five days. Jesus walked. Everywhere he went. How humble is that? And this, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We read things like this in the Gospels all the time, from Bethany to Cana, 60 miles, back up to Jerusalem, another 40 miles. How did Jesus do this? He walked. The omnipresent God who's everywhere at once closed his eyes to his omnipresence to walk. Why did he do that? To show us how to walk. We are to walk with Christ. And we are to walk with an attentiveness to the Lord. And where did Jesus walk? Jesus walked into places that needed the compassion of God. Jesus emptied himself of his omnipotence. He's all powerful. And yet he did nothing unless he did it through the Father's power. Jesus willingly descended from this. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. And this, Isaiah 44, 24, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, Jesus says. And then in Jeremiah 32, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for, for you. Jesus went from this to this in Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who, cannot, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who is tempted in every way as we are. And again in Hebrews, although he was a son... He learned obedience from what he suffered. The King of kings, the Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, was tempted in every way as we are, and he suffered. I mean, just to, just to highlight as a case in point, Jesus' extreme, infinite humility. Jesus didn't even begin his public ministry until he was 30 years of age. What did he do this whole time? He just laid low. He just worked in his dad's shop as a carpenter. And then when he did begin his public ministry, when he did begin his campaign of the kingdom of heaven on earth, how did he go about it? 
with, with news media and cameras and lights and posts and all of the tweets and all of this? No, no. How did he go about it? Interviews? No. His cousin, his six-month elder cousin, John the Baptist, was baptizing hundreds and hundreds of people at the Jordan River. And then John looks up and he sees his younger brother, Jesus. What is Jesus doing? Waiting in line. Like a common, sun-baked Jew. Just waiting in line to be baptized. Waiting his turn. He didn't push his way to the front. Nobody knew at that time Jesus was anything special. And then finally, after John's hundredth baptism, Jesus walked up for his turn. And John looked at him and said, Oh no, not in a million years. No, there's no way I'm going to baptize you. And Jesus said, It's all right. It's, this needs to happen. Jesus was baptized. And after that, was he interviewed? No, he disappeared for another 40 days in the wilderness where he prayed. This is Christ's. He emptied himself. He descended. He humbled himself more than any ever will, and he humbled himself all the way up to the cross. Now let me pause there for a moment. I was getting a cup of coffee on the way to church this morning, and I saw this Wall Street Journal, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to pick this up. Wall Street Journal says, Pope Francis clears the path to sainthood for Mother Teresa. It's interesting, isn't it? And it says right here, upon approving a second miracle. So Mother Teresa's second miracle, I think somebody prayed to her or something of this nature, and then Pope Francis cleared away to priesthood. Now, when I look at Mother Teresa, as you guys know, I, I, I used her in my sermon last week, and, and I don't know many more people who have lived more like Jesus lived and taught and died than Mother Teresa for 60 years. I have a great deal of respect for Mother Teresa. I believe with all my heart Mother Teresa's in heaven as long as she was relying on Jesus for her salvation, and I believe that she was. I believe Mother Teresa is, 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 was an amazing lady. However, what we just read was heretical to the core It was false doctrine and false teaching to the core. The Pope can clear the way for nobody to be a saint. What is a saint? Well, a saint is anybody who places their faith in Jesus. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2 that those who believe in Jesus, the church, are saints. We read in Romans chapter 1 verse 7 that those who believe in Jesus are saints. And a saint is someone whose sins are forgiven, who's clothed with the very righteousness of God. A saint is someone who is heaven bound. And all believers are saints. A saint is somebody who through Christ has the right to pray to God. A saint is not somebody who is prayed to. That is idolatry. That is heretical. And the Pope can clear the way for nobody to become a saint. How hubris, arrogant, and self-righteous to the core is that? To think that anybody could clear the way for anybody to be a saint. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross, and through Him and Him alone can we become saints through faith in Christ. Or do you think that you or I or somebody else in in, in a position of, of, of religion, do you think that they can add to what Christ did on the cross? Jesus humbled Himself all the way to the cross, and He paid for our sins, and then do you want to know what He said? 
One of his last statements from the cross was It's an accounting term. And I studied finance in college, so when I first learned this was an accounting term, my ears perked up. It means it is paid for in full. Did you know that if you went into the marketplace and you bought some meat, they stamped across your receipt? It is paid for in full. Did you know that, that, that as, as a prisoner served a 10 years term for maybe stealing something, that they stamped across on his release papers? And you see that inscribed, graved, engraved on the inside of prisons, uh, meaning price paid in full. It's probably what a prisoner carved on his last night in prison. And when Jesus was on the cross, he uttered these words that are... So rich in theology that have more than an ocean of meaning in this drop of a statement, the law. It is finished. Price paid in full. All of your sins were paid for. And now, when you place your faith in Christ, you are a saint. The righteousness of God. You are assured a place in heaven. And there's no purgatory. Straight from this life to heaven. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die, well, to die, that's gain. Now, to go on living in the body, well, that's fruitful for you, but to die, well, that's far better for me. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain, through faith in Christ. There's no soul sleep, there's no jet lag, there's no time delay, there's no purgatory, lights out here, lights on in heaven. And we see ISIS killing people. And there are some people on a beach recently who were beheaded. Their very last words in this life were praise Jesus. And their very first words in heaven were finishing that sentence. It is that quick. It is that instantaneous. In my office I have this. Maybe you've seen this picture. It's Jesus holding somebody up. And this is a picture of our salvation. And it says... Grace is the kindness and favor of God extended to you. It is nothing you can earn or deserve. Grace is God's saying to you, you can do nothing to save yourself. There is no need to even try because I have done it all. I have given my son to die for you. And he has made you the perfect sacrifice of your sin. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice of your sin. Come and receive my free gift. And this is the incarnation. From heaven's throne all the way to Golgotha's cross. So that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In an instant. In a moment. It's not a process. It's an event. Like a bolt of lightning. The spirit of Christ enters you at the decisive moment of faith. And you are born again. The old is gone. And you are the very righteousness of God. And you are a child of God. And nobody has to clear that path for you. Because the path has already been cleared by Jesus. And now all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As Reuben and I prayed over Aiden last night. Or yesterday afternoon. The one year old baby. 
you know, we prayed and then we visited a bit. And I said, you know, I believe God's going to heal Aiden. But, you know, whatever God chooses, we're, you know, we'll, we'll have to trust his sovereign will. And I, I do believe that baby's going to be healed. But then I told them, I said, you know what? The greatest miracle is when Jesus forgives our sins and he clothes us in his righteousness and he gives us the promise of eternal life and we are born again. That's the single greatest miracle. And then I looked at one of the men and I said, have you received this miracle? And he said, he thought about it and he said, yeah, but I wasn't sure. And then I I looked at one of the young ladies, probably 20, 21, and I said, would you like to receive this miracle? And she said, yes. And then I looked at the mother of the baby. I said, would you like to receive this miracle? I said, she said, yes. And then I looked back at the man and I said, would you like to receive this miracle with them? And he said, yes. And, And then they gathered around and we bowed our heads and they confessed to Jesus that they're a sinner and they believe that Jesus paid for their sins on the cross and they invited Jesus to come into their life and be their Lord and begin leading their life. And then they asked Him to be their Lord and Savior. And in that moment, those three souls were saved. And that was a one-time decision that will last for the rest of eternity. It's not a process that they have to keep adding to, but it's an event. It's like there was obviously a process that led them up to that moment, but the moment is an event. Just like there's a process that leads up to a bolt of lightning, but a bolt of lightning is an event. And there was a process that led them to that moment right there, but it was an event when they called on the name of the Lord, and like a bolt of lightning, the Holy Spirit entered their heart, And they are in the grip of Christ, and nothing can snatch them out. And Jesus tells them, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when Jesus looks at them, he sees no sin. He sees his righteousness, and their sins have been paid for. on the cross. And so now, as followers of Jesus Christ, it's really staggering to me to see uh, church leaders over the years act so unlike Christ. And we mimic political leaders, we mimic CEOs, we mimic mimic the corporate environment, and we mimic the government, and we try to incorporate that into our culture. And oftentimes churches are are well-polished to the exclusion of the Holy Spirit, and oftentimes churches are abrasive to the exclusion of a Christ-like spirit. And that does not honor Christ, but we are to follow Christ. We are Christians. We follow Jesus. And the more we empty ourselves of ourselves, this is called sanctification. The more we empty ourselves of ourselves, the more He fills us with His Spirit and might. Now don't raise your hand, but let me ask you this. How many victorious, joyful Christians do you know? How many victorious, joyful Christians do you know? Now the second question, when you look into the mirror, are you one of them? The more we empty ourselves of ourselves, the more He fills us with His Spirit and His might. The Bible says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Watch what took place as a result of Christ's humiliation, of His incarnation from heaven's throne to Golgotha's cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, including Buddha, including Confucius, including Gandhi, including Abraham Lincoln, including George Washington, including Mohammed. God has bestowed upon Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And we either bow willingly now as his children, or we'll bow forcefully later as his enemies. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And now we follow Jesus in his humiliation. We follow Jesus. Jesus said, don't try to climb the ladder, carry the cross. And when we follow Jesus by carrying the cross, we'll experience his authority and his power flowing through us, which is what the world desperately needs. The world is not in dire need of a Republican in the White House. The world is not in dire need of a Democrat in the White House. The world is in dire need of the church functioning with the authority of Christ. Look at the revolution that Christ created. How did he do it? Through humility. And when we dare to follow Christ and carry our cross, his love and his authority and his power will flow through us in an unmistakable fashion. So three action steps this Christmas. One, surrender your plans to God's wisdom. Let's give up our omniscience like we have it. But let's surrender our plans to God's wisdom. As we read in Proverbs, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And He will make your paths straight. Remember the blind skier? Let's close our eyes to our so-called omniscience. Let's close our eyes to our five senses. Let's close our eyes to our fears. And let's listen for the voice of God. And let's submit to that voice and follow that voice. Second, surrender your comfort to God's presence. We think that Christmas is supposed to be so comfortable. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire and hot chocolate and apple cider and the song, I'll be home for Christmas and all of this. We think it's a tragedy not to be home for Christmas. But do you realize that is just like the opposite of the spirit of Christmas? Because nobody was at home on the first Christmas. Uh, The shepherds weren't home. Uh, Mary and Joseph wasn't home, and Jesus, most of all, was the furthest away from home. He left the comforts of heaven and came to earth. Why? For love, for compassion, and that's the essence of Christmas. Let's close our eyes to our omniscience and trust God's wisdom. Let's close our eyes to our comfort and just rely on God's presence as we're His hands and feet where people need His compassion the most. Bono of you two uh, made the statement. I thought this was so profound. He said, is Jesus with us in our mansions? I hope so. Is Jesus with us at our concerts? I hope so. Is Jesus uh, with us in our award uh, ceremonies? I hope so. But I know where Jesus is for sure. He's among the sick, the hopeless, the helpless, the dying. So if we want to be where Jesus is, we better go where they are. And that's the essence of Christmas. But not just Christmas, that's the essence of following Christ. That is how we are to live. God says, For for thus says the high and the exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I will dwell in a high and holy place, obviously in heaven. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Thirdly, let's surrender our weakness to God's power. I love this statement, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So much weight in that statement. 
Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. We've been having a great study about this statement over the last three Saturdays or so in our men's discipleship group. But what's so remarkable about that is that Abraham was 99 years old when that statement was written about him. So he's 99. He's like right here. Abraham believes the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's awesome. But what could be confusing, and oftentimes in Scripture when you see something that's confusing or you might even think it's a contradiction, just keep praying, keep praying, keep going a little deeper and it'll end up being so profound. So what initially on the surface seems confusing is that it's Genesis chapter 15. Abraham's 99 years old. He believes the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. But 25 years earlier... Abraham is 75 years of age, and he starts following the Lord. He hears a promise. He receives the promise. He believes the promise that he's going to be the father of many nations. And so for 25 years, he's following the Lord. And yet it's not until he's 99 that he believes and it's credited to him as righteousness. We cross-reference that with New Testament verses. That was an Old Testament salvation experience. Why was he not saved over the last 25 years? Well, it's because when Abraham started out believing the promise, he thought it was a bit of a partnership between him and God. He thought that this partnership was probably going to be, you know, this is going to require at least 40% of God's effort and about 60% of his own effort. You know, he's got to pull his own weight, right? And so he starts following God. And you can tell that Abraham thinks it depends upon him because he's lying, he's manipulating He's, he's doubting, he's disbelieving, he's, he's discouraged. And so he gets here and he realizes, okay, all right. Uh, okay, God, you're going to have to pull more of the weight here than I originally anticipated. I thought it was about 60 me, about 40 you. Well, I'm realizing now it's going to be about 60 you, about 40% me. And so he continues on. He's trying to make the promise happen in his own strength and his own ability to the extent that he sleeps with his servants and his Ishmael and it's still a mess today as a result of that. Still no promised child. And he realizes, okay, God, I guess the promise is, is going to depend a little more heavily upon you than me. So it's going to be about 90% you, God. You're really going to have to pull most of the weight. But I'll, I'll still do about 10% of it. Abraham is 99 years of age. Still no child. His body's as good as dead. His wife, Sarah, her, her womb, has, has, she's always been barren. Now she's, she's 89 years of age. What is the likelihood? I mean, Abraham now, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, he's 99 years of age. He finally comes to the place where he realizes, okay, God, you still promise I'll be a father of many nations? I'll believe, but it's going to have to be 100% you, because I can bring nothing to the table. And Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that's what salvation is. It's believing 100% of our salvation depends upon Jesus. 100% of our righteousness depends upon Jesus. Jesus said from the cross, Te taste the law. It is finished. Price paid in full. We can add nothing to it. No miracle can ensure our sainthood. No pope can clear our path. No good deed can, can, can earn our place in heaven. Take taste the law. 100% Jesus. Nothing, nothing from us. And that is salvation. And when does that happen? When we bow our heads and confess Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior. Would you stand with me please?
You know, there's a story about a missionary, and he went to, to London. This was, you know, 150 years ago, and he was going to create an orphanage. And he sees this little kid, and he goes after this kid. And this kid is, is scared from the missionary, and he doesn't know what the missionary wants, so he starts running. And the missionary kind of runs after the kid. And finally, this kid, he turns around, his heart's beating fast, he's scared, and he says, Okay, you want to fight? Let's go. And the missionary's heart, it just melts. And he said, son, I don't want to fight you. I want to adopt you. I want you to be my son. I want to feed you. I want to give you a home. I want to give you clean clothes. I want to give you a future. And many people spend their entire lives running from God. And that's why Jesus came to earth. I don't want to fight you. I want to give you my righteousness. I want to make you my son, my daughter. I want to give you the promise of heaven. I want to give you my spirit. I want to have a friendship with you. And yet people are still running from God. You know, that's one of the reasons of the incarnation. That Jesus came the way he did. So that like that farmer who opened the door and scared away the birds, that we wouldn't all just run terrified. But he dwelt among us. He was one of us. And then he said, follow me, trust in me, believe in me, look at how much I love you. And then he paid for our sins on the cross. And maybe you've been relying on something other than Jesus Christ for your salvation. Maybe you've thought it's been a bartering, a partnership between you and God. It's 100% Christ, zero effort from you. Trusting in Christ exclusively. You say, well, what, are good works and loving the world and, and righteousness not important? Oh, oh, it's extremely important. But it's just not the cause of our salvation. It's the result of our salvation. When we realize it's 100% Christ, and we bring nothing to the table, and we trust in Christ, His Spirit comes within us, and that Spirit is a seed. You plant an apple seed, what grows? Apples. You plant an orange seed, what grows? Oranges. You plant a cherry, what grows? Cherries. We're brilliant, aren't we? And in the same way, when we trust Christ, the Spirit enters our heart, and that Spirit is a seed. So what grows? Holiness. The Holy Spirit enters our heart and gives fruit of righteousness into our lives. And gives the fruit of the love of Christ into our lives. Jesus came from heaven to earth, the incarnation, and acted like that missionary chasing people down and saying, don't be afraid of God. I want to give you hope and a future. Now Christ is in heaven, and now we have the Holy Spirit of Christ in our heart. Now we are His hands and feet. Now we are on God's behalf to chase people down and say, don't be afraid of God. Turn to God. Trust in Christ. Let Him fill you. Let Him forgive you. Let Him save you. Have you received the greatest miracle? You can. Let's receive that now. Would you bow your heads? With a bold, audible voice, pray, God, I have sinned, but you have paid for my sins. Price paid in full. And Jesus, come into my heart and forgive me and clothe me with your own righteousness and give me the promise of heaven. Save my soul and begin leading my life. Be my Lord and Savior. And if you've receive Christ for the first time, or, or maybe you've been a Christian for some time, I want to lead you in this prayer from your heart to God. Let's pray. God, make me your hands and feet. Make me your voice. Love the world through me. Shine your light through me. 
Let me be light where there's darkness. Let me be forgiveness where there's hate. Let me be the voice of Christ. Use me to lead people to you. Thank you, Jesus. Now let's just, let's just respond with worship.